Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rabbi Iggy. Um, today, we have a guest with us today. Um, uh, Richard, Richard Capriola, uh, has been a mental health and addiction counselor for over two decades. He's been licensed in Illinois and Texas, uh, and he recently retired from the manager clinic in Houston, uh, where he worked as an addiction counselor for uh, adolescent and adult diagnosed with psychiatric and substance abuse disorder. Um, and he has written a fascinating book uh, called The Addicted Child. A Parent's Guide to uh, the Adolescent Substance Abuse. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rabbi Iggy. Thank you so much for inviting me to your program. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and hopefully we can share some information that your listeners will find uh, interesting and informative. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So... Um, I, I guess we should start with um, what... What got you into this work in the first place? Well, I had a long career in education, uh, over 30 years in Illinois. And as I transitioned away from that career, I moved into the mental health field, working at a mental health crisis center in central Illinois, a regional crisis center, and then went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a degree in uh, addictions counseling and uh, worked at the crisis center for a while longer and then accepted a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital that treats both adults and uh, adolescents diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse disorders. I worked at Menninger Clinic for about uh, a little over a decade. And during that time, I would uh, meet with families of teenagers whose children were uh, using substances, uh, alcohol, marijuana, different kinds of drugs. And I would sit with the family and I would go over their child's use of a substance, what drugs they'd been using, how young they started, how often they were using, and give them a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And many times they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't think it was this bad. And these are good parents. These are very good parents doing the best job they can. They missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. So after I left Menninger, I put together my book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. I kept it to about 100 pages because parents are busy. They don't have time to read volumes of information. Uh, but I wanted to put a lot of information into it that I hope families and parents will find informative and helpful and, and walk away thinking, okay, I've got this. I, I'm less paranoid. I'm less afraid. And I hope I don't have to deal with this issue. But if I do, I feel better prepared to deal with it. That was my goal. And so doing this, do you, I guess, sort of, how, how do you, how do you start to really have conversations um, around, around this with, with people that is sort of like, as you do this, right. Um, it's hard, right? Because for so many people, they either 
um, have now a child or somebody you know that, that is sort of diagnosed right with with an addiction uh, abuse disorder, right? Or people that sort of are are sort of like in a younger age. But I think a lot of people may say to themselves, or well, I don't have a problem, right? Sort of how do you like? Do, does, is this for everybody? Should every family, no matter what, no matter where, sort of like? Uh, I'm sure you would say yes. Read the book, right? but like, but but that is sort of like, right because we're, we're facing it's sort of a kind of a limbo, right? It's sort of this preventive stage, if you will. Yeah, I I I I, I do recommend the book for for any parent, regardless right. of whether their child is a pre teenager or is a teenager. Um, you know, the, the the dangerous approach is in the idea that this substance use, this addiction, this using alcohol and drugs happens to other kids. It's not going to happen to my kid. And that's a very dangerous attitude to have um, because uh, substance abuse can happen to any child, any child. There is no child that's totally protected. There's protective environments, but no Mm -hmm. child is totally protected. It doesn't matter whether you live in an urban, rural, or suburban area. It doesn't matter what your level of income is. It doesn't matter what church you go to, and it doesn't matter what school you send your child to. Addiction and substance abuse can happen to any child. And I think that parents are are best advised to be knowledgeable about this issue. Don't become paranoid about it, but become knowledgeable about it. Know what drugs are out there. Be familiar with them. Know what the warning signs are to look out for. Because like anything else, the sooner you can catch a problem, the sooner you can resolve it and get treatment for it. And the less likely it is to spiral out of control. So, so that's the question. So, so prevention is possible is yes. what, what you're saying that yes. we can actually do some prevention. Yes. Yes. We, we can, we can be aware of the issue. We can know what the warning signs are. We can know what the treatment options are if we need them. And we can know what assessments are important to get a comprehensive diagnosis. And all those things are in my book. But we can become better informed. Knowledge is power. And the more we know about this topic of adolescent substance abuse, the more confident I think we feel in terms of being able to recognize it and deal with it if we have to. You you are... Right, so like doing this work, right? You're you're sort of um, writing this book. Um, do you find that there are uh, similarities in the way the sort of the young adults um, and teenagers sort of uh, get to addiction? Well, you know, every child is different. Uh, there is no one route to, to, to getting captured by alcohol or drugs. Some, some teenagers uh, explore it out of curiosity. They just want to know what it looks like. They want to know what it's like, say, to smoke marijuana or drink alcohol. And, and, and then it moves on from there. Others are captured by peer pressure. Their friends are using it and their friends are putting pressure on them to use it. And, and, they, and they give in to that pressure. 
And then for some kids, not all kids, but for some kids, there's an underlying psychological reason why that child is using a substance to medicate. It's to medicate an underlying issue like anxiety or, or depression or trauma. Most of the teenagers that I treated at Menninger Clinic who were smoking marijuana frequently, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. So for some kids, there is an underlying psychological reason why that child is using a substance to medicate an underlying issue, which oftentimes gets undiagnosed and untreated. What about the the other senses of the self with teenagers, right? So we work a lot around spirituality, the sense of mattering, the sense of having significance in this world. Yeah. Um, how, how does that play into um, that sort of frame of mind of a teenager or a young adult? I, I think that's a, a, an extremely important issue because many times these adolescents are looking for uh, some type of identity. They're looking for some meaning in life. Now, they, they may not express it that way. They may not even understand it, but, but they are growing and learning and exploring and looking for something to tie themselves to, some type of, of meaningfulness in life. And the more that we can help kids connect with that, then the less likely they are to venture into other avenues to, to seek that. So I think I think that's an important, a critically important area that uh, that that teenagers oftentimes are struggling with. Uh, they don't know about it. They, they don't put it in words like like you just did. Um, but but definitely it's an issue that I think is is of is of importance to the teenage population. And all and and, and if we can do things to help them connect, um, then I think we go a long way towards perhaps keeping them away from alcohol and drugs. Um, from your from your work with teenagers, what does connection look like for them? It's different for every kid. Uh, sometimes it's connection with their peer group which oftentimes can be either a positive or a negative influence. Uh, For some, it's connection with an extracurricular activity. You know, they're heavily involved in a sports program or some type of sports activity, and it's connection with that activity and their friends that are participating in that activity. Uh, For some kids, um, you know, it's a spiritual connection because they're involved in in their uh, uh, church activities, their religious activities. Activities and they're involved in, in groups that are sponsored by the religious organization. So it varies from kids to kid, but what is important is that connection, that sense of being connected to something that is meaningful and rewarding. Why? I guess this is a general question for like if you have any insight especially sort of like vis-a-vis what's happening in the world in the last few days and everything. Um, Why are we so bad at offering teenagers and young adults these senses of connection, right? We see more and more acts of violence. We see more and more, you know, frustrated children, right? The the rate of addiction is grows higher, right? Sort of like uh, the the death rate, of course, we know sort of because is, is incredibly high, why are we so bad at offering connection to to people? I, I, I think it's a 
uh, sadly, it's a symptom of the society that we live in. Um, you know, the pandemic affected teenagers, it affected uh, adults, it affected the mental health of both teenagers and, and adults. Prior to the pandemic, we'd already witnessed a, a crisis in teenage mental health. It had, uh, it, it had been getting worse and worse. And then the pandemic just, just made it even even more worse than what it already was. So we've been having a mental health crisis in this country among teenagers and adults for years and years, and then the pandemic sort of intensified it. I think it gets back to that lack of, of, of connection, that lack of meaningfulness, that lack of having a purpose in, in life that, that so many teenagers lack, and, and many adults do as well. And when we don't have that connection, when we don't have that purpose, purposefulness, that, that meaningfulness, then we venture into other things that often involve catastrophic behaviors. Right. Writing this book, thinking about young adults, what were the biggest challenges in, in this project? The biggest challenge was to boil all this down into a book that would not be overwhelming, a book that would present the basics and a book that would be easily readable and, and, and something that a parent could read very quickly. So it was to take an awful lot of information and boil it down to about 100 pages and keep it in non-technical, everyday language that parents can grasp and understand fairly quickly. And... And is that is that sort of um, I guess for people who want to know or who know, who want to know more? Sorry, right? Is is that enough? Right? Is it enough sort of to 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 gain like a, a right sort of kind of a glossary view of of the subject? Absolutely, um, absolutely, it is. It, uh, it it will give a parent a basic understanding of adolescent substance abuse. It will it will help them understand how these drugs work in the teenage brain. It will help them understand that the teenage brain is a in the process of maturing and doesn't become fully developed until around age 24 and 25. And it will help them understand how these drugs work in a teenage brain. It will help them understand what the warning signs are that they need to look for, whether it be for alcohol or drugs or self injury or an eating disorder, those warning signs uh, are there in, in the book. It will also tell them, help them understand, well, what assessments are needed? If, if I feel my child is using a substance, what professional assessments do I need to get so that I can get an accurate understanding of what's going on? And then if treatment's available, if treatment's necessary, what are my treatment options? Because there's everything from outpatient to intensive outpatient to residential. Well, what are all those about? And more importantly, or just as importantly, how do I know what a good treatment program looks like? And mm. what kinds of questions should I ask a potential treatment program? All of those are in the book. So, so not to give away, but what do I need to look at? When I think about a treatment program, what do I need to look for? What are the categories that I need to look at when I'm thinking about treatment programs for myself, for loved ones? Wait, wait. What, what we need to look at is matching the, the program 
to the diagnosis. Many times a person will have what we call a dual diagnosis. In other words, they'll have a substance abuse disorder and they'll have a mental health issue. Perhaps it's an alcohol use disorder or a marijuana use disorder and an anxiety disorder or a depression disorder. So they'll have both. Well, you, you want to match the person's diagnosis to the appropriate treatment program so that the person is getting the treatment that will that will truly be directed at, at, at what the person is struggling with. It doesn't do me any good to treat a person using marijuana if I don't if I don't treat their anxiety. I've got to treat both. So the important thing is we get an assessment, we get a treatment plan that comes from the assessment, and then we get treatment recommendations on what treatments will best address the problems that have been identified. When 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 we're thinking about this, because that makes perfect sense, of course. But when we think about this, um, and when we think about sort of like the the medical profession and and what's happening in in sort of like the the health space in the past uh, decade or so, right? Um, I find I don't know if you agree, but I find that a lot of doctors, a lot of sort of health practitioners, tend to diagnose mental health issues. Um, very early on, um, and and then so like the the addiction or right the substance abuse disorder so like get piled on top of that, right? Rather than sort of like thinking about just the human condition, right? The sort of that right everybody has anxiety, everybody feels sad, right? That I feel this sort of like right is this is this a a um a outcome of a lot of pathologizing of the human condition, especially with young adults, that all of a sudden everybody gets diagnosed with all these diagnoses. And by the time they're 18, they have like four diagnoses and a bag of pills. Yeah, I I think that happens, uh, unfortunately, uh, in too many cases. Uh, But there is also too many cases where a child is suffering from an underlying issue of anxiety or depression. And they may have had that, uh, that, that, anxiety or depression for years, and they have stumbled into a substance like marijuana or alcohol or some other drug, which gives them the relief that they want uh, from the substance. So unfortunately, uh, these kids, many of these kids suffer from a disorder that's that's undiagnosed for a, too long a period of time. And kids are no different than adults. If we have an intolerable thought or feeling or memory, we don't just sit with that. We look to, to, do, to do something to get rid of it. And, and oftentimes that solution is found in a substance. Right. So, so that's where right, so a lot of the sort of work that, that we do comes in, right? Because th- that is an excellent point, right? Because we're asking people, teenagers or not, to sit with an intolerable thought, right? Yes. We're asking people to, to choose pain over right immediate relief right and the, and the natural reaction is i want the immediate relief nobody likes right. being in pain nobody likes being depressed or being so anxious that you that you 
can't function very well. Right. And there are techniques to help people deal with that that don't involve medications, that don't involve alcohol or drugs, but right. that requires patience. It requires a lot of pac- uh, practice. And we live in an instant society. We, we want our problem solved today. We want a solution now. And adolescents and adults oftentimes, too many times, find that solution in a substance like alcohol or marijuana or some other drug. It gives them the instant relief that they that they seek. Right. Or right, or food, shopping, anger, so like all the other things. It could be any of those as well, because right. those can also become uh disorders. Right, right. Um when when parents sort of look around themselves, right? And again, I know it's in the book, but like what are the kind of categories that we should look out, right? Not just as parents, right? As parents, as caregivers of others, right? What kind of things should we look out um, when we are encountering people around us, when we're going around the world and sort of trying to see if if, if we can be of help? Well, I, th- I think we need to be more patient. We need to listen more. And by that, I mean, we're pretty good at listening to each other's words when we talk, but we're not so good at listening to the feelings that are behind the words. And that's a skill we can all practice and we can learn so that when we're talking to people, we're not just hearing their words, we're hearing the feelings behind those Mm. words and we're reflecting them back to see if what we're sensing is correct. I think there's a lot more that we could do in terms of communicating with people to help them feel as if we really are tuning in. We're really paying attention to not just their words, but their feelings. And when they have that sense that we're understanding their feelings, they're more likely to open up to us and share information with us. So when you say that, what what tools or, or how can we be better at listening to the feelings beyond the words? I I think the key is to uh, reflect back what we think we're hearing because we often assume things that aren't correct. Uh, For example, you know, if your child is acting out and angry uh, rather than than react in a negative way, you might observe a behavior and, and, and say to your child, I noticed that you were doing such and such. Can you help me understand why you were doing? it. Or I sense that you're feeling angry. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you're feeling? Um, it's basically an attempt to, 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 to connect with the person's feelings, not just listen to their words. We're, we're okay with that. We're pretty good at that. But it's reflecting back the feelings that you think you're hearing and seeing if those feelings are accurate or not. And that can be a powerful communication tool. It's also a skill that every parent can practice and every parent can learn. Right. I, I don't know. Right. Right. So I have, I have teenagers. Right. <laughs> um, um, sometimes if I, if I have conversations like this with my kids, right, they will, they will say something to, to the version of, uh, you, you're trying to right, you're trying to rabbi me or you're trying to right to, to therapize me, right. So yeah. like, right. So, right. Um, right? and then right, uh, a, a slam door may, may ensue, but, um, <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that sounds like great advice. I guess part of my question is, 
um, how do we take in consideration people around us in our life? I guess not just teenagers, right? Because uh, I feel a lot of us sometimes act like teenagers, but right, people who are resistant to that kind of conversation, right? So like, I, I like stop repeating what I say. No, that's not what I meant. I don't want to. I don't want to tell you. Right? No, I, 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 and. and- you know, as parents, I'm sure we've all faced that kind of a reaction right. you know, where, where they shut down on us or they tell us no or they tell right. us, the, you know, they give us one word answers. Um, and that's the challenge that we have as parents to to hang in there and, and try to uh, try to get more information from the child. You know, if if they come back with a response, well, you're, you're, you're trying to control me, you're trying to dictate to me, then my response would be, help me understand why you're feeling that way. Help me understand what I'm doing that causes you to feel like I'm trying to dictate to you. To, to dig a little bit deeper, don't just walk away from the conversation or let them do so, but reflect back to them. I sense that you're getting angry about this. Can you help me understand why? Um, help me understand why you feel the way you feel. Um, it may work and it, it may not work. You know, you, you, The child may blow up and get angry and defensive, or they may actually you know, go a little bit deeper and share some more information with you. Are there, um, are there um, really big red lights that sort of that, that sort of everybody should, should, should be aware of, like, as we just walk around the world, just to say like, Oh, that is really something that might be really problematic. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when you're dealing with an adolescent, um, it can be very difficult for a parent to sort out, well, right. what, is, what is just normal adolescent acting out behavior and what is something that I, I should be more concerned about? Um, and that's why I put the warning signs in my book. There's warning signs for alcohol. There's warning signs for marijuana. There's warning signs for a child that might be developing an eating disorder or self-harming themselves because sometimes an eating disorder or self-injury can accompany a college child's using a substance. But but what I usually recommend to parents is pay attention to the changes you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. Don't assume the changes that you're seeing are just normal adolescent acting out behaviors. They might very well be that, but they also might be an indication that there's something else going on underneath the surface that you need to be uh, paying attention to. So some examples would be uh, a child who uh, used to uh, participate in sports, no longer wants to participate or enjoy sports. A child whose grades are starting to decline. A child who's getting into disciplinary problems at school or at home. Um, A child who used to uh, introduce you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who some of their family members were. Now becomes very secretive of who their friends are. Um, And a child who becomes very secretive about where they've been. Uh, These can all be warning signs. Now, if they they appear and they come and go fairly quickly, it's probably not too concerning. But if they tend to linger on over a period of time, and then you begin to see more and more and more of these warning signs, then I think uh, it's you need to be concerned and perhaps get some professional assessments done so that you can either rule in or rule out if there's an issue that needs to be addressed. When, um, when we're looking at these signs and we're looking at teenagers, right? Um, there's been this sort of this sort of weird thing that's happening with the pandemic, right? That on the one hand, there's a much larger crisis 
of mental health, right? So yes. we're seeing one. And on the other hand, we're seeing some numbers decline in terms of substance use uh, right, disorders, right? So that yes. they're using slightly less alcohol, less marijuana, right? But, but the, the mental health crisis is rising alarmingly. You're absolutely right. During the pandemic year, um, adolescent substance abuse declined significantly across the board, whether it was alcohol or marijuana or all of these other drugs. The percentages of teenagers using substances declined significantly during the pandemic. Now, we still had about one uh, one of every three high school seniors using some type of substance, um, and about 30% of high school seniors reporting that they'd been drunk. But overall, the the incidence of adolescent substance abuse went down during the pandemic. On the other hand, as you noted, mental health crisis became worse. Teenagers were reporting feelings of feeling depressed and anxious and angry and having sleep problems. And and we'd already had a mental health crisis among the adolescent population for 10 years prior to the pandemic. The pandemic just made it worse. What so so do you have a theory as to why that is? Like why like is it access throughout the pandemic? Um is it the, the decline? Is it um, is it some is it something else? Um, like, I, I I think it's access. Uh, you think it's you access? Know, two things two things that that drive adolescent substance abuse is availability. These drugs are widely available, right. and a sense of harmfulness. Kids don't think these drugs are very harmful. So when you have a situation where you have drugs readily available and kids don't think they're harmful, then you're likely to see the substance abuse that we've been seeing. Well, during the pandemic, kids were pulled away from school. They were pulled away from their social engagements. They were pulled away from their peers. They were pretty much confined at home doing online learning. Um, And as a result, the, the availability of drugs was not readily there for these kids. So we saw a decline. Now, after the first of next year, the new national data will come out and we will see if the decline that we saw last year continued during the current school year or if because kids got back into their regular academic routine, the substance abuse went back up. We'll know that after the first of the year. Right. Do you have a theory? My theory is that we'll see a rebound and and that we'll see an increase in adolescent substance abuse during 2022. Have you, um, have you found through this sort of work on the book and the research and your work throughout, um, things that surprised you, things that you were like, Hmm, I didn't think about like, I didn't, I didn't know this. or I didn't think about that. What are the moments that you kind of like were like left scratching your head or be like, Oh wow. I, I really didn't think about it this way. One of the things that was surprising to me was that parents were so much caught off guard 
by their mm-hmm. child having a substance abuse issue. Now, many of the kids that I dealt with, the situation had got totally out of control, life-threatening, and, and parents had to admit their child to a psychiatric hospital. But one of the things that surprised me was you know, how, how easily it is for these kids to fly under the radar so that parents get blindsided by the fact that their child is using a substance. It was just uh, amazing to me on how clever these kids can be and how they can go under the radar, fly under the radar and blindside their parents uh, who, who had no awareness that their child was using a substance to the extent that they were actually using. That was surprising. The other thing that surprised me was I discovered that what, what really captured these kids' attention didn't have anything to do with telling them it was illegal or telling them that it was bad for them, or telling them if they continue to use a drug, they might not graduate or get into college or get a job. They didn't care about any of that because they didn't believe it. But what did matter to them, what caught their attention was the neuroscience. They were interested in their brain. They were interested in how their brain worked. So when I could talk to them about the neuroscience, how their brain worked and the importance of of protecting the developing brain, and then I could show them how drugs work in the brain, that captured their attention. They were interested in that. Why, why do you think that is? Because kids are curious and they're bright and they want to learn. And for me to tell them drugs are illegal doesn't teach them anything. But when mm-hmm. I can show them how marijuana works in their brain and I can show them the different areas of the brain and what they're responsible for, you know, have an area of the brain that teaches us to talk, an area of the brain that helps us walk and things. And then I can show them how marijuana attaches itself to different areas of the brain. That caught their attention. They were mm-hmm. interested in that. So do you think that sort of, right, and maybe that sort of, that's one of the things we have to sort of work on with people, right, right, that should, those conversations should be part of the dinner conversations, right, like, let, let's, let's talk about how, how part affects, affects your brain, let's talk about what happens when you use meth, no? Well, if you have a child that is, say, a pre-teenager, early right. elementary school, um, I would begin just by teaching them about the brain, because they're right. curious, you know, lay that foundation of the importance of the brain when these kids are very, very young. Teach them about the brain and, how, and why it's so important and what it does. And then as they move into adolescence, you can start to introduce how drugs work in the brain. So first you teach them about the brain, then you teach them about how drugs work in the brain. That's something that a family can do. It's it's And it's also something that our school system should be doing. Right. You know, this idea that we'll have a, a, an assembly once a year, we'll bring in a, a law enforcement officer, a police officer, and, and, and try to scare these kids, that, that hasn't worked ever. But we could do a lot better if we focused on the neuroscience in the elementary grades and then introduced uh, the substances and how they work in the brain when kids get in middle school and high school. Um, But but I think we have a chance of really capturing kids' attention if we focus on the neuroscience. And, and I will add, right, to like the, the also the right, the sort of spiritual, psycho-emotional elements of it, of it all, right? Yeah. The ability to understand how that affects them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the things I, I love within your website, right, there is the, uh, uh, the, the Newport Academy, sort of the 10 questions. Yes. Yes. You know, of, of, uh, of mental check-in. Yes. Very, very, uh, very simple 
10 questions that you can ask your child uh, every once in a while to check in on their mental health. Like, you know, um, you know, one of them deals with the weather. Right. Um, right. I mean, I hear, I mean, I can read them, right? I mean, like, right. So like, what for people who are listening, right? Sort of one is uh, what three words best describe how you're feeling right now. Yeah. Right. Uh, Which is, uh, which is interesting. Right. And, and, and I think people could sort of like answer. I don't know. I don't know how you're feeling right now. I'm, I'm feeling. I'm feeling really rather calm at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a real simple thing. Just just ask your child. Give me three words that reflect how you're feeling right now. Right. Right. Then, right on a scale of one to ten, going from negative to positive, what number best describes your state of mind? Yeah, and every kid can give you a number. You know, right. and, and that gives them a reference. You know, one is I'm not feeling too good. Ten is I'm feeling great. So today I feel like I'm a six. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and then you can follow up on that with, with questions. Well, tell me more about why you feel it's a six. Right. Help me understand what's going on that you feel it's a six. Just right. being curious. Right. In psychology, right, we sort of we learned there's a, a scale called SUDS. Right, the subjective unit uh, of um, uh, of now the word escapes me, but but it is very similar, right? So like uh, trying to uh, to assess where you are in your in your feeling of dysregulation, subjective unit of dysregulation, right? Um, Number question three, number three is fill in the blank. Something I've been thinking about late a lot about the something I've been thinking about a lot lately is Right. right. Uh, that, so, well, you know, so if they've been dwelling on a homework assignment or they've been dwelling about, you know, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you know, that, that gives them an opportunity to bring that up. And then uh, you can maybe follow up with some some interesting questions about that one. Absolutely. Uh, if your feeling were weather, I like this one. If your feeling were weather, what kind of day would it be outside? Yeah, it might be a cloudy day. It might be a sunny day. It might be a rainy day. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's just, right. a, again, it's a, it's a fun way that you can approach a child and ask them a very simple question that might actually lead to some information that you, uh, that you could find helpful. You know, it's funny. This is where a question like that for me as a child would have put me in trouble because everybody, everybody around me knows that I have what I'm self-diagnosing as reverse seasonal disorder. Wow. I get irritated and angry in the summer, right? I hate the heat, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I love the cold, right? And the colder it is, snow, rain, like I absolutely adore it. My, you know, people around me, it drives them crazy because I'm like, oh my God, it's such a glorious day. It's like snowing and squalling. Well, right now is the weather, at least in New York, is turning i'm like grumpy i don't want to go <laughs> so i think the weather would be a good indicator of what's going on with you <laughs> exactly. like it's sunny and beautiful <laughs> um if your life was a movie what song would be the soundtrack right now yeah i, I love that question i think that's a very creative way of thinking about sort of what what is your theme song at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah, and it may change from time to time depending on how that child is feeling, and you know it's going to change. Absolutely. Uh, what would you like to have less of in your life right now? 
right? And then, of course, number seven, what would you like to have more of in your life right now? Yeah. It's two separate yeah. questions, right? Right. And and with all of these, the idea is to follow up with the, with the information that you're getting. Have, you know, see if the child will explain a little bit more why they think, why they think it's a rainy day outside or, or, you know, why it's a cloudy day or, or why they're not feeling a certain way. You know, it's an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper. Right. Um, number eight is a question that we, we actually ask in our own spiritual living uh, in the journey that we use here at Chuba Center, right? This is a weekly, but, but for us, it's a daily, right? Tell me about the best thing and the worst thing that happened to you this week. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's an opportunity for them to bring up something that made them feel really good about themselves and maybe something that uh, caused them to not feel so good about themselves. And then you can explore that with the child. Help me understand a little bit more why about this. That's really what you want to do. You want to understand, want to get a little bit deeper, understand a little bit more about the feeling. Uh, the last two, perhaps, are my two favorite questions in this little questionnaire, which is number nine is, what's the hardest part about being you right now? Yeah, yeah, that would that might bring up some interesting uh, some interesting statements about what the child might be struggling with. Right, and then of course the last question is, how can I support you better? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you may get a very easy, I don't, I don't know, (laughs) answer. Um, and you can, you, you can explore that, you know, help me understand why you feel that way. Um, or you might actually get a concrete suggestion. It may be a suggestion you don't like, like, you know, don't ask me any more questions (laughs) or, or it might be, uh, something that, uh, uh, that the child really feels will be helpful. Right. I feel that my child or my children would be like, uh, what will be her support is if you stop asking me silly questions, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, that could lead to another observation, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, all information is valuable. That's right. I mean, I feel it's interesting because I feel that sort of that um, one of the interesting things about these questions is sort of that we're talking about teenagers, of course, but, but this is true for adults as well. Right. So like, I, I feel yeah. this sort of like this question that adults as well would do. And, and, and perhaps even, you know, back, if we're back to, to the family situation, these would be great table topics. They would be. It's a conversation that, you know, you could go around the, 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 the dinner table and you could put the question out and have everybody answer it, not right. just the kids, but the adults as well. So right. you could pick one or two of these at, at, at a meal and, and toss them out there. And maybe you could lead by example and I'll go first and just toss one of those out and just go around the table and have everybody, uh, everybody answer the question and maybe have a little bit of discussion about what they hear right um if you were to rewrite the book today like other things you would add or things you would subtract or things that you would change about it Uh, i don't think i would change too much because i wrote it to be you know a a basic uh, learning issue Uh, there's nothing that i would change in terms of the neuroscience or the drugs kids are using or the treatment options or the assessments Um, I, i meant for this book to uh to be a resource that uh, is available to parents. If I were to rewrite it, uh, I can't think of anything new that I would add to it. Um, uh, I, I just think it was intended to be a, 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 a very quick read and a resource for parents that has information that'll be good today, tomorrow, uh, uh, two years, five years down the road. How, how has the book affected you personally? 
Well, it's allowed me to be able to um, meet with a lot of people like yourself. It's allowed me to reach out to people. I've had a lot of positive uh, comments on the book. My attitude on this book was whether it's regardless of how many people read the book, if this book saves the life of just one child, then it is worth all of the effort and all of the time that I have put into it. Um, the, the goal is to help parents and save children's lives. And if the end result is it saves the life of one child, then I count that as being a success. Right. Is there a reason you, you got into this kind of, of work is like, right. So like, cause right. There's a lot of, a lot of things we can sort of like, you know, deal with children. So like is, is addiction something that sort of that, that speaks differently to you? It is because it comes from a mental health background. Uh, so many people and so many teenagers are affected not only by alcohol or drugs, but by mental health. And, and we have a mental health crisis in this country that is just growing and growing. Um, unfortunately, uh, treatment is not available to a lot of people. Um, and it's becoming more and more of a crisis. And I, I saw how addiction affects not only adults, but adolescents and and. and and families, and I, I wanted to reach out and, and, and try to help them. Hmm. Well, that's very admirable. Um, uh, last thoughts? Um, no, uh, Rabbi Iggy, I, I thank you for your questions and for giving me the time to share this information with yourself and your audience, and, and hopefully uh, everyone who listens to our conversation today will walk away uh, with uh, a sense that they understand this topic a little bit better. Perhaps they'll go out and buy my book, which is available on Amazon, or the book's website, which is helptheaddictedchild.com, and just feel a little bit more confident about this issue and less afraid of it and, and feel like they, get, they have a better understanding of it now. Fantastic. Uh, Richard, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for your insight. Thank you for your work and for this book. Uh, I'm Rabbi Iggy out of Chuba Center. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us. Uh, see you next week. This podcast was recorded by Chuba Center. I want to thank our team, Ben Lichman, Grace Sheed, and Sadie Baker-Wax, who make this all possible and make sure that the guests and I sound as best we can. Thank you all for listening. Hugs and hugs.